Hi, everybody. Welcome to the June 7, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. I want to thank our friend, Miss Calhoun, who sat in for me last week. Uh, we'll be back to long, drawn-out, nonsensical questions with me this week. So uh, you're welcome, Denver. Let's get a quick take on Denver voters approving Initiative 302 by a margin of nearly 4 to 1 in this week's runoff election. Before the city of Denver spends public money on any Olympic bid in the future, they must get approval from the Denver voters. Patty Calhoun from Westward, is this the death knell for Olympics officially in Colorado? Not according to the powers that be who say, well, they had polled and Denver voters were behind it. They just wanted to be allowed to vote on it. I would argue instead, though, they would have to come up with an incredibly airtight package that that had Amazon paying for everything, including, you know, the Amazon drone delivery luge run in order for this to go through. I completely agree. The, the Amazon bullet train to veil everything else. Uh, David Culper from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. This felt a little bit of the spirit of Tabor. I realize it was in the city of Denver, but the voters want to be asked first before approving the expenditures. Did it, did it feel like Tabor to you? Oh, yes, the, the, the principle of, of consent. And of course, the before Tabor, we had Dick Lamb in 1972, who led uh, the statewide initiative to say no state money for uh, uh, the Olympics for the 1976 Winter Olympics. Instead of saying the 76 Winter Olympics, they just should have said all Olympics. Uh, and that's what Denver voters did, in fact. And I think that same year, Denver voters passed their own separate initiative uh, for no Denver money. Um, my view is we don't want to encourage people to come to this state so they can go on welfare. And if the Olympics want to come here, that's fine. Just pay for it all yourself. Don't expect uh, the people who are not luge participants or media or other folks uh, to pay for it. Pay, pay for your own darn Olympics. <laughs> pay for your own darn Olympics. The, the, the bumper sticker writes yeah. itself. Well done, David. Uh, Eric Sonneman, political analyst. This feels like Denver voters spoke up for uh, folks who would want to have voted around the world about this in their own particular city before you go sign this up for something that could end up being a boondoggle, and it has for a lot of cities, Denver spoke up first. Uh, do you think that's the case? Yeah, there's something to be said for direct democracy, where power of initiative, power of referendum, etc. And we see it here often in Colorado. I guess I have two quick reactions, two quick words. First, it's predictable. You knew this was going to pass. You knew it was going to pass by a huge margin, four to one. Does not surprise me. Second word is moot. I really think it is a moot point. Uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee had already passed on, I believe, 2028. So now we're looking. The first one they may bid on is 2032. Denver would just be one of a whole bunch of cities possibly in line. I can't imagine the Olympics coming to Denver in my lifetime or even in years in Natasha's, Dominic. <laughs> Uh, as a great segue, Natasha Garner, articles editor at 5280. Uh, is this simply something that gets overturned by maybe Teddy Hickenlooper's administration in 2038 and uh, what, uh, when he wants to go for the Olympics many, many years from now? Well, that would uh, certainly be a change in the way Olympics are financed. Uh, it would have to happen before that would even occur. The biggest, the interesting thing to me is that usually we let budgets be decided by the people that we elect. Usually we, we do what we did this week and we pick officials who then decide where our budget priorities are. It's very different to say, okay, but no, no, don't even bring it up. Just never, never ask this question. Or if you do, you really have to ask everyone in the city. I'm wondering if it sets a stage for other initiatives like this. Is there anything else that Denver isn't willing to spend money on without everyone agreeing that we should. That would certainly be a surprise in Denver, but anything can happen. 
Mayor Michael Hancock won his re-election for his third and final term as Denver's mayor on Tuesday night, defeating opponent Jamie Gillis with 56% of the vote. In his victory speech, Mayor Hancock announced that the election was a job evaluation for him and noted that community engagement was one of the things he planned to work on. Uh, Patty, now that we look back at this election, and it was a crazy May, uh, four weeks of a nutty runoff election, did Mayor Hancock do more things to win the election, or did Jamie Gillis do more things to lose the election? Well, Mayor Hancock did about two million things to win the election. He, that's how much he outspent Jamie Gillis by on this. So there's no question the get out the vote thing worked for him. Didn't work for her. her. But the real evaluation of his mayoral ter- his first two mayoral terms was May 7th when instead he got 38.6% of the vote. If everyone thought he had done such a great job as mayor, he, there wouldn't have been a runoff. He would have gotten more than 50% of the vote. He got 38.6%, which is not a stunning approval rating for an incumbent mayor. Uh, it, had there been a stronger candidate with, whose, whose name had been in the news more, is his or her, if Robin Kanish, say, had decided she was going to run in February 2018 when the Leslie Branch Weiss news came out, if other people had decided they were going to risk going against an incumbent, I think we would have a new mayor today. I think Jamie Gillis ran a pretty, uh, a very uneven campaign, but she was new to this. And look how close she actually came. Although ultimately it was 11, 12 points off, the fact that she scared them enough to put $2.7 million into a third-term campaign for an incumbent unbelievable phone bank actions, what they did to get out the vote, and the dirtiest campaign in recent memory, and Hancock threw the first mud. It isn't a glowing referendum on where we are. Let's hope we can get a little more light into the government right now. David, uh, an eight-point win is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, it certainly had a lot of ground to come up from to come up from from May seventh. But uh, in this runoff election, that was better than what uh, Mayor Webb and Mayor Pena faced in their second-term runoffs, but not their third-term runoffs. So, when you look at the 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 final election results, what sticks out to you? Well, it, it was an impressive win, as you said. Pena uh, won his runoff after for his for his first and only re-election uh, by under two points, Webb by a, a more comfortable margin, but this was larger uh, than that. Um, I, I think as Patty said, the, the vote on do you think Hancock is doing a good job was over 60% no and under 40% yes, but he was able to do enough damage uh, to his opponent uh, that, as negative campaigning often does, it, it kind of it drives down electoral participation in general. So I think he only got 8,000 more votes than he got the first time around, and her vote total only improved by about 15,000. So a lot of the, the Tate and Calderon voters stayed home. I can especially understand on the Calderon voters because if, if you liked her, Gillis and, and uh, Hancock were way, way, way more middle of the road uh, than, she, than, than she was, so they, they maybe didn't have have a choice, they thought. Um, this, it's always, it's always better to win than to lose, uh, but the, he won in a quite dishonorable way, and I think this uh, reduces significantly the chance that he will be able to use this as a springboard uh, to run for something else in, in the future. One thing that will be interesting to see is now we've, we've had sort of the second major citywide election where somebody is really, in a demagogic way, playing the race card. The 
hardcore racist who ran against Diana DeGette in the Democratic primary last time got over 30%. Now, Hancock, who did it with a, a little bit more subtlety, um, not, not quite as ridiculous as DeGette's opponent, you know, here he comes in over winning with over with 56% by doing that. So it will be interesting to see what lessons Crisanta Duran takes away from that in her challenge to DeGette in the 2020 Democratic uh, congressional primary and whether she decides to follow in uh, these dishonorable steps of uh, trying to inflame uh, racial animosity. Eric, I think back to this program about, it was about a week into the runoff campaign, and it was a week that I would characterize as uh, the Tale of Two Cities week for Jamie Gillis. It was the best of times and worst of times. She came out on Monday with uh, the rally with Tate and with Calderon. She had unified the, all the opponents. It was great. And I think 48 hours later, answering questions about the NAACP flub, uh, the Tacos and Lowriders event, it felt like a lot of self-inflicted uh, wounds that only cascaded for the rest of the campaign. You only have four weeks to build momentum, and that was the shot. Uh, perhaps I'm being uh, myopic about it. What do you think? No, I think that second week of the runoff, when you and I actually taped the debate here, that mm-hmm. uh, didn't air for some period of time after, uh, it was an awful week for Jamie Gillis. I think the third and fourth week were maybe slightly better, but the die was probably cast at that point. I think I've commented before whether it's over a cup of coffee or sitting on a debate stage with these candidates, I don't know that I've ever encountered a less political person running for high political office than Jamie Gillis. That's not a criticism. It's not a compliment. It's just a statement of fact. It's not somebody with just raw, natural political instincts who sees everything through a political lens. I actually think she grew quite significantly into the role, particularly in the closing weeks. But a lot of these were unforced errors. A lot of these were somewhat gifts she gave to the Hancock campaign. And Lord knows they exploited them. Uh, They exploited them. It was not pretty, but uh, politics is often not known for its artistry. Uh, It was an unrelenting pounding. We all, as citizens, sit around and condemn negative advertising and how awful negative advertising is. Well, I have a newsflash. It works. It very doesn't always work, but it very often works, and we saw it work in this case. There are other reasons. Hancock certainly had the superior ground game, superior work out in the neighborhoods, etc. To this notion of Michael Hancock calling this a job, uh, a job review, a review of his job performance, and that was part of his ongoing uh, stump speech around town. If it is. It, If you really mean that, if this is a job review, I've never been in a job review where you come in and you spend 95% of the review discussion with your superior pounding somebody else who happens to be also uh, (laughs) maybe a candidate for this job or whatever. I guess I'm just making the point of their advertising campaign certainly didn't reflect the notion that they wanted this to be a referendum on Michael Hancock's uh, performance. I agree with your point about this, this being politics. I mean, I think the whole the negative campaign as my whole stance is everybody hates them, and they, would, they only exist because they work. 
If they didn't work, they wouldn't exist. It's a pure capitalistic point of view. Um, Natasha, uh, here's Hancock that has uh, an eight-point win after a brutal runoff election, but he, now he stands with his third term. He can't be reelected because of term limits. Where does he go from here? Where does he take this energy? Mm-hmm. What, what should be his priorities hearing the community in this last few months of these elections? Absolutely. I, and, and he talked about this on the campaign trail. Well, I think perhaps in your debate, he spoke with us at 5280 about it too, sort of giving one or two words to describe each term so far, and the first being about recovery and the second term being about growth. Um, and this third one, he, he said that his intention, if reelected, was to focus on equity and balance. So now he said that. It's time to pursue that. And I think that's, that's what's going to be telling here. You know, during the campaign, there were some proposals that he already was looking at. You know, there's been this, the suggestion of creating the Department of Transportation. That's an interesting thing that, it, that sounds like Denver is going to pursue and have to perhaps go to voters um, to look at that as well. Um, It'll be interesting to see what other proposals like that he starts to put together because now we're, lo- we're moving into legacy territory. We're, we're moving into, all right, what happened in the first and second term matters, and that'll be part of the story. But what happens in the third term is really going to set the tone for how the city remembers him. And I'm sure that that's weighing heavily on his mind, as it should as a mayor of a major city. Um, but it's also time for voters and, and the people of Denver and the city council to hold him accountable to some of those promises and uh, ideas that were put forth during the campaign. The master of the segue, our friend Natasha, speaking to the council. Three Denver City Council incumbents lost their runoff elections this week. Mary Beth Sussman from District 5 was defeated by Amanda Sawyer, 58% to 42%. The race in District 9 was much closer with Albus Brooks losing to his opponent Candy C. DeBaca by just 700 votes. And Wayne New lost by six points to his opponent's Chris Hines for the District 10 seat. The three-way incumbent defeat is the first in modern history. David, uh, uh, in Candy C. DeBaca, you definitely have a very progressive, I think that's probably even playing with the term of what you can define as progressive, uh, uh, person coming onto the uh, council. I don't know if her other non-incumbents joined her in any shape or form in that kind of beliefs, but it's definitely going to have a different feel. Five new faces the council. How does that affect Denver? Well, I, overall, it, it, it's a good thing. We've had previous city council cycles where basically everybody got reelected and, and nothing was close. So, you know, sort of like the, the Soviet Politburo. Um, and, and so the, this, this, this was good, that there were real races and challengers won some of them. And in some cases, like the, I think Chris Hines, uh, it was just this was the guy with, with more energy getting out there, connecting with, with voters more than, than the incumbent had. On the uh, Albus Brooks versus Candy C. DeBaca, I guess I have, I have mixed feelings. I'm, I'm happy Albus Brooks lost uh, because of his bullying of a uh, coffee shop in his district that put up a, a sign that was a joke and everybody got in their usual I am so offended uh, mode about that. And he was down there leading the protests against him. That's a... It's it's beneath the the dignity or the leadership role uh, for a city councilman to be that kind of bully. On the other hand, the the downside of him losing was his opponent won, uh, Candy C. DeBaca, and she is somebody who, you know, in the political spectrum, you would say, well, here's Lisa Calderon. Compared to her, Lisa Calderon is a hard right-wing extremist Fox News uh, TV personality. You know, she said that the way we allocate labor is wrong. But what what she was saying was like, 
private employers voluntarily hire people who choose to work for companies, and it sorts it out, and you go work for the employer you want if they'll pay you. And she said, no, that, that, that's a terrible idea. Uh, we, should, the, we, the community, by which she means the government, should be in charge of labor allocation. The, uh, the classic, you know, she didn't say she was a communist, but that's the East German-type slave labor model of how we allocate uh, labor. And she is in no sense a progressive in the true meaning of that word. She is absolutely a regressive uh, who wants to return to the failed uh, lack of freedom of employment uh, that existed in much more uh, primitive and uh, less free societies. Eric, yet again, you have to follow another milquetoast, middle-of-the-road opinion from David, so good luck with that. But uh, do you see this as a new era for the city council? Yes, it is a new era for the city council. Just two quick thoughts off the top. Number one, Candy Cedabac is going to be a name that we talk about around this table frequently over the years. She will push the left flank. She will be a lightning rod. She will represent a whole lot of people who don't think they have a voice now. Uh, the Denver Socialist Party or whatever, there's some website out there, and they were all in on this after her victory uh, Tuesday night. So this is a name that we will, and it will give us plenty of fodder, and that's all to the, uh, to the positive. A quick factual conversa- uh, clarification on our first go-around, uh, just so we can avoid some letters to the station. Hancock's win was 12 points. It was not 8 points. Thank you. Very um, good point. And uh, I think we just ought to go on the record on that. The magnitude of this city council turnover is significant. In the last 32 years, since 1987, there were a total, grand total, cumulative, of three council people who lost re-election. Then, earlier this week, three of them did it in one night. So that is a dramatic uh, statement. I regard that the, the council election was the tell here. Uh, it was what the, the theme of this election, and it was an anti-incumbent, anti-developer, anti-city hall sentiment. It was a sentiment that would have washed away Michael Hancock in other circumstances, but a combination of the resources he had at his disposal, some of the inexperience of his still able but inexperienced opponent, other factors at play saved his skin. But the real message of that night was those council races. And don't forget that Michael Hancock lost who I regard as his two key allies and leaders on council, those being Albus Brooks and Mary Beth Sussman. They were the ones who were most in communication with him, often carrying his water, and they are both gone. So it's going to be a new era between the third and fourth floor of City Hall. Natasha, we have a strong mayoral uh, system of government in Denver. That's mm-hmm. not saying anything about Mayor Hancock or any other mayor. It's just the way it's done. Most of the levers of power rest in the mayor's office. So do all these changes in the council mean something for the city of Denver? Yes, if you worry about potholes, it absolutely does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of, one of the things. Sidewalks and potholes come under city council. Um, what, what I think is interesting here is that there, we're spending a lot of time right now analyzing what happened in this election, trying to draw conclusions. And, of course, the the turnover of these three incumbent seats is a big deal. But the question for me always as a reporter is to look at where do we stop historically? You know, when do we start to say there's been a reset? And I think with this election in Denver, we might be able to say that. There has been such a population increase. The growth changes that have happened in the city have truly changed. So are these three seats turning over purely a referendum on on what happened with growth pains in the city? 
or is it more an example of where Denver is going to be in the future? Is this something we're going to start seeing in council races? We're going to see with the population increases that we have, um, with the interest that nationally candidates, um, we're seeing more and more candidates running for races. Is this just, just going to become par for the course? In which case, we should probably all get some sleep and rest up for the next election because it's going to be busy. <laughs> <laughs> rest up before an election. You are a crazy optimist. I, I think that's just fantastic, Natasha. Uh, Patty, wrap it up for us. Is this a monumental day in the history of the Denver City Council or just this is the way politics is in 2019? Well, considering how dull most city council days are, yes, it's monumental. As I drove up here, I saw the Albus Brooks sign and the fact that Albus lost, who was kind of the doppelganger of Hancock in some ways. He, you know, had helped push the urban camping ban. He was kind of looking as the heir apparent and that he lost just showed how vulnerable Hancock was if he had had a tough, tough opponent. And I think people are kicking themselves now that they didn't take that chance. The sign you're referring to is different. We're in the Five Points neighborhood here at the Channel 12, and it's an enormous billboard. But it was put up like a week before the end of the runoff election, and the, 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 the other folks around here that worked like, why would that come up like five days left? Well, now we know why. Jefferson County School officials uh, announced this week that they are seeking community input on tearing down the current Columbine High School and rebuilding it due to the morbid interest in the building from outside sources. Uh, Eric, this is one of those odd public opinion things, and I like the fact that Jefferson County is going out to the public. What do you think they're going to hear from public input about this uh, idea? I don't know what they're going to hear. It's an interesting trial balloon. My own quick take, and it's a very quick take because the news just broke on this last night, is... You know, it is just a building. Um, I'm not sure the district has 60 or $70 million of loose change lying around, which would cost to replace it. And if you're going to put that same name on a new building in, in effect, the same location, maybe the lot just to the west of it, does that make it substantially less of a magnet? Columbine has taken on a, a weird, unique magnetic role in some unfortunate aspects of our culture in, in this country, but I'm not sure you make it go away with the construction project. Natasha, I think about, and this is another morbid interest into a murder, uh, but uh, the whole uh, Charles Manson murders and the house that uh, those murders took place in was just torn down and nothing's there now. Tours still go by that mm-hmm. same place, just say that's where the house stood, even though it's not the same one. Um, does this solve any problem? What do you think the input's going to be? Well, I think it's very easy to see both sides of an argument. I mean, I could make that of, of for keeping the building um, and, and also tearing it down. I, I can understand why parents look at it and say, well, is this where I want to send my child? Um, at the same time, if we tore down every place of gun violence in this country, um, it'd be a very different looking country. Um, you know, we had a special issue devoted to um, Columbine in April, and, and Robert Sanchez actually wrote a long piece about the, the sort of after effects on the community community and looking into this very subject of what that building means. I do think that no one in that community is going to make this decision lightly. Patty, uh, is Jeffco going about this the right way? Well, they're at least talking about it publicly is the right way, but ultimately it makes no sense, especially if you talk about keeping the name. It has gone way beyond the physical building. Let's remember a very ill, mentally ill 18-year-old girl from Florida came here. She didn't go to Columbine, the high school, when she decided to come to Colorado to kill herself during the anniversary week. She just came to Colorado, home of Columbine. David, wrap it up for us. A good idea from Jeffco? Uh, perhaps, but as has been pointed out, it could be a lot of money and it might not solve the problem. I just wonder if... if the problem could be alleviated by, say, building a 12-foot-high stone fence 
uh, around the whole place and then just having, you know, gates for cars and pedestrians to enter um, and, and keeping out all the, the weirdos who come to, to gawk at it. You know, we had the same kind of thing in, in Boulder where there was a young beauty pageant contestant named John Benet Ramsey who was murdered under unsolved circumstances and there were a lot of sickos uh, who came by to to want to look at, at that house. Let's get to our very, very part of the show. Disgrace of the week, as always. Miss Cahoon, please start us off. Uh, a disgrace that's a long-running disgrace here. Rocky Mountain gun owners and their current campaign against Tom Sullivan pushing his recall with a very tangential relationship to maybe that he pushes heroin. Tom <sighs> Sullivan suffered through a son dying in the Aurora Theater shooting. Let's, let's respect what his position is on this. David. Dudley Brown can be a disgrace in any any week of uh, the year, uh, but I would say the the new lawsuit against Jack Phillips, the masterpiece cake shop baker, because he wouldn't buy a cake, make a custom cake for somebody's sex change operation. You know, it's he wouldn't didn't mind the colors on a custom cake, but just like if he came and said an orange, I want to buy an orange cake, he'd be fine. But he said, I want to buy an orange cake for Halloween. He would say no because, for his beliefs, you don't. Halloween is a, a thing he doesn't want to contribute uh, to celebrating. Uh, a, a, a tolerant and fairer society is more live and let live than that. Eric, I want to take to task our, our governor, Governor Polis. He's uh, exhibiting an attitude these days of completely cleaning house from a previous Democratic administration. This was not a changeover down deep into the bowels of Colorado government, including some highly specialized agencies, in terms of really just not reappointing any board or commission member who might have been previously serving or appointed by Governor Hickenlooper. It's unlike anything we've seen. I guess if you buy an office like uh, Governor Polis bought that office, it's your plaything and you can do with it as you please, but he is throwing some really good people in very specialized positions out of their position. Natasha. I'll start with some praise. Denver election has definitely received plenty of it for, for their efforts to make uh, voting more accessible to the average person. But turnout is still awfully low for municipal elections. It'd be great to see more people turn out for those. See something nice rather quickly. Patty. Uh, the 14th edition of LitFest put on by Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Denver's literary scene is really blossoming. David. Governor Polis for vetoing bills which expanded the which would have expanded the already excessive amount of occupational licensing in Colorado. Eric, David, and I didn't coordinate. I was critical of uh, Jared Polis on the on the disgrace. Compliment him on those five vetoes. Uh, there are a whole lot of uh, professions and occupations that don't need to be licensed by the government. Good for him for taking a libertarian stance. Natasha. Governor Polis's decision to take the massive boulder that fell and turn it into a memorial. <laughs> Before we leave tonight, we have several important updates. If you're looking for advice on financial planning, and really who isn't, be sure to attend our free financial planning wills and trust workshop that is here in our studios on Tuesday, June 18th at 1 p.m. Call 303-296-1212 for more details. And again, it's a free workshop. Next, I wanted to give a special preview of our next season of Street Level, the, this time focusing on the startup boom in Colorado and how it all came to be. It premieres on June 18th, but if you have Passport with CPT12, you can catch the entire series right now, so be sure to check it out. And finally, we wanted to send a special congratulations to our producer, Chelsea Hernandez, who is graduating from the University of Denver with honors next week. In fact, she just won the Melrose Award, which honors her achievements in the journalism department. Well done, Chelsea. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at CPT 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. Mm -hmm.